Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Alessandra Daggermangian talks with Ted Winar and Ira Schaefer, partner and of counsel, respectively, at Hogan Levels. They talk about working with Ethereum smart contracts and how blockchain technology can be used to protect intellectual property rights. Enjoy! This is Alessandra Daggermanjan, and I'm here with Ira Schaefer and Ted Milnar, and we're talking about blockchain and smart contracts today. Could you both start by telling us a little bit about your backgrounds and work at Hogan Levels and the Blockchain Smart Contracts Working Group? This is Ted Milnar. I'm a partner here at Hogan Levels in the Intellectual Property Department, and happy to talk to you about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and smart contracts. We've been working in this area for a couple of years now and approach it from the technology side. We are patent lawyers and patent litigators with technical backgrounds, electrical engineering and software backgrounds that give us a particular advantage in this area because we really understand the underlying technology. My name is Ira Schaefer. I'm also a patent litigator with a technical background like Ted. I'm of counsel here at Hogan Lovells. Been practicing patent law for a long time, patent litigation. Again, our curiosity was piqued by this new technology that sort of sprung up out of nowhere in 2008. And we started hearing things about it. But the big question is, how does it work? And that's what we started to look into and got more and more into the technology and all the other issues relating to blockchain. So the lawyers in your practice group actually have technical backgrounds and work with the technology. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So we have a group of attorneys here that we have put together for the purposes of demonstrating our technical capabilities in this area but also our legal capabilities in the in the field of blockchain the idea is lawyers who code lawyers who can actually provide advice about computer programs and that's the underlying technology in the blockchain at at its very core blockchain is software well, the lawyers that we hire in our group are hired because we do patent litigation in high-tech areas that involve computer software and electronics. Uh, we also do pharmaceutical and uh, cases of with so-called science cases. So those people are here because that's the kind of cases, those are the kind of cases that we litigate. And so they already came here having the kind of capabilities you need to look at blockchain-type technology issues. For example, one of our associates is a programmer and can program in the programming languages that are used for smart contracts in blockchain. In fact, he even created a blockchain as a demo for TED for a financial sector retreat that he went to in Barcelona recently. Do you also consult um, blockchain experts? We do. As part of our work, we work with software experts and blockchain software experts in particular for the purpose of developing smart contracts and for evaluating them. The idea is we should be looking at smart contracts and blockchain technologies very critically 
to make sure they do what they're supposed to do or promise to do and that they actually work in ways that they're intended to. You might have heard about hacks happening to some of the blockchains that have already been made available. And so clients are very concerned about the security of these types of uh, products and whether or not they're susceptible to any sort of manipulation or other alteration by a hacker. Well, I mean, we work with experts all the time in our cases, but lots of times clients want to hear from us immediately about what our gut feel is for what issues may be involved. So to some extent, we need to be able to understand the software or the issues involved in the, with the technology because they want an answer right away. They, they know we're going to hire an expert eventually, but you know, for the initial uh, engagement, they want us. They want to know what we think. So, do you think that lawyers um, need to have technical backgrounds to utilize the blockchain? Well, look, there are pat we, in our in our group uh, patent litigators. We do, as I said, technical cases relating to high technology and science. But not every lawyer in the IP group has a technical background. There are a lot of issues with blockchain technology that require things other than having a technical background. So. I think there's room for everybody. But you do need some people with a technical background to understand the nuances of the technology. And that's really where our smart contract lawyers come into play. The ability to marshal both the technical expertise and the legal understanding here, and then partner with those legal subject matter experts, really sets us apart. In that way, the client is able to take all of that expertise and use it at one time as opposed to waiting for a technical expert to be retained, review the code, and come back with some sort of technical analysis. We're able to provide all of those services at the same time. So how has the use of the blockchain changed your practice? Is it something that's really pervasive right now? Do a lot of um, lawyers know about it? Are they using it? Well. Not a lot of lawyers are using it yet, and so it's changed our practice because we're providing a lot of CLE, continuing legal education in this field. And traveling around and talking to people about it, almost like proselytizing, uh, you know, the masses. Yeah, we've been called the blockchain evangelists (laughs) by some, but the reality is there's a lot of new technology out there and new use cases that are very interesting to our clients. And the lawyers need to be out out, uh, ahead of these developments and in a position to advise clients on how their businesses are going to be impacted. Well, and, you know, part of the problem is that a lot of people associate uh, blockchain with Bitcoin. And right, I mean, you can understand that. It's the first use case. But if, you're, if you say, well, I'm just not interested in Bitcoin, then you have the tendency to say, then I don't need to know about blockchain either. And so that's, the, that's a bit of a problem. But the reality is for lawyers is that what happens if your client calls you up and asks you a question about blockchain or uses some of these terms that are mimic to blockchain technology? What are you going to do? Say, gee, I don't know anything about that. So it is something that lawyers are going to have to know about if they don't know about it yet. And the practical reality is clients are either in an industry that's going to be disrupted by the blockchain technologies 
or want to invest in those technologies or have to deal with their own customer or client requests dealing with those technologies. So we're seeing blockchain spring up throughout the spectrum of our practice um, in so many different ways with people saying, wow, I really wish I understood how this worked. And yes, I sort of understand that it has something to do with Bitcoin or software, but how exactly will this work? And that's where we can come in and provide a lot of help. Now, in addition to knowing about blockchain, we also happen to be IP lawyers. And as IP lawyers, we do things like prepare patent applications, give opinions on patentability, on freedom to operate, that type of thing relating to patents, or even whether or not software that's being used is copyrightable. So we have been involved in doing work relating to blockchain in that regard, but that's probably not that much different from any other IP work we do for clients with other kinds of technology. It just happens to be related to blockchain. Could you explain exactly what the blockchain is, particularly for people who don't have technical backgrounds? So the blockchain is really the blockchain technology. There has been created a new data structure, a new way of storing information on a computer. It's a database. It's also referred to as a ledger. And so you might hear this, this term distributed ledger technology. At the end of the day, it's copies of a database that are being held by multiple computers simultaneously. And the idea is everyone's got this database. They're able to update the database in synchronization with each other. And they do so in a way that's new and novel. It's also highly encrypted. And so unlike some of the other databases and even you know a normal spreadsheet, you're able to update this database, encrypt it as you go, and so it's really, really secure. And the promise of the blockchain technology is that this will be an immutable database. That is, it can't be changed. It's almost like a read-only memory, or you write it once and it never changed after that. But, I mean, the goal of the person who invented it, and we don't know who that is, just have a, a name, Satoshi Nakamoto, <laughs> was to eliminate the need for a trusted central authority, for example, a bank. Get rid of the middleman. That, that was the whole purpose of it. But in order to do that, you have to prevent fraud. So there's a lot of mathematical techniques that are used in blockchain technology to eliminate the possibility of fraud. So this idea of having no central authority, having this ledger that's distributed, that everybody has the most up-to-date copy of it all the time, and the fact that it can't be changed once it's entered into, meaning old records can't be changed, obviously new records are added, are certain very, very desirable characteristics for a database. And so if those kind of if that kind of database is useful for a particular purpose, then you have a winner. So the first purpose was for a cryptocurrency, the Bitcoin. But as time goes on, people are thinking of other ways of using it. And one of the obvious applications here are for publicly available records. It would be great, and it is already being done, to have certain public records available on a blockchain there for everyone to access, but no one to change. I think that's something that's going on right now in Delaware for their corporate records to do that. Some stock issuances have been done where the stock trading is kept track of on the, on the blockchain. 
and one of our partners, Lewis Cohen, helped with Cook County, Illinois' implementation of land records on a blockchain. So you can see there's opportunities here for certain information to be recorded. It's almost like your permanent record. And that's one of the use cases that's coming out as well. Are we going to be tracking identities with a blockchain? Or your healthcare records? Or your grades in law school? <laughs> At some point, you can imagine having a permanent record that is mutably created and follows you wherever you go. That's one of those use cases. And in places where people don't have other types of identity uh, documentation, this, this technology is being adopted. There's maybe a billion people out there without access to banking, without access to certain services, without access to identity documents, or might have lost their identity documents due to upheaval, upheaval of <laughs> one type or another. Yeah. As a result, if we can create an immutable database with their personal information, maybe some biometric information like a thumbprint, and then track them and provide services to them or enable them to access certain systems, that could be a great benefit for yeah. a lot of people. Or just prove that they are who they say they are, which, is a, which for a lot of people is a big problem. I mean, that's the biggest problem for refugees trying to come into the United States, to prove who they are. And so if you had some kind of immutable record where no one could go in and make changes to it and fake a record, that would go a long way in satisfying security concerns. Right, and obviously you both use the blockchain technology for smart contracts. So how exactly do you implement a smart contract? So a smart contract is just another piece of software. And so the blockchain, if you have created a blockchain that can store other software, and one of the most prominent ones right now is called Ethereum, you're able to store computer programs on the blockchain. And it's there and operating or running just like software on your computer. But now we have a distributed network of computers all running that same software. Now the idea with smart contracts, they're, although many people have noted they're neither smart nor contracts, they really are pieces of executable computer programs. And the idea is at some point we're going to take our regular written contracts and implement portions of them with software. Put them on a blockchain and let them run autonomously. You'll set them up or wind them up and let them go and you won't be able to stop them. That portion of the contract will just get executed based on what's been programmed. The idea is that's an improvement in certain circumstances where we don't want to suffer human intervention or second thoughts or force majeure or other problems. A smart contract reduces the amount of risk the parties face and provides a greater reason to believe that the contract will be implemented the way the parties intended as programmed. Oh, I was just going to say that the person who came up with the idea of smart contracts, a gentleman named Nick Zabo, had his initial thought behind smart contracts was that it would eliminate the need for lawyers. But as Ted and I have uh, commented in previously in some journals, the, the use of smart contract is only going to increase the number of lawyers needed because the idea of having a smart contract, having code that carries out the intent of the parties is great, 
but who's going to know that the intent of the parties has been carried out? The programmer or some lawyer who can understand both the code and the contract itself. And so that actually is going to create more work for lawyers and not less. And the day will come when a client says to you, okay, I need to do this as a smart contract. I know you went to law school and took contracts. Take care <laughs> of this for me. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the problem is if, if you go to your computer, your IT department, and they write the code, you have to question that person to find out whether all of the ifs and buts and eithers and ors are covered in the code the way you understand it in the contract. And you may, well, if you're in law school, you probably haven't come across this yet, but you may see in, in life that many times lawyers deliberately make contracts vague right. for whatever reason. I, no, I'm not going to attribute any reason to it, but <laughs> how does, what does the programmer do when a contract is deliberately vague? You have to flip a coin, and 50% of the time you're going to be wrong. And so the software has to be precise. The parties may want some less precise language. They may not be able to agree at that level of, of precision. So what do you do? And that's where we see smart contract lawyers coming into play. It may be a new kind of class you take. You'll take smart contracts. And smart contracts will be a process in which lawyers will look at the code that programmers have written or they will work together with the programmers to create the smart contracts and implement the party's intent. Smart contract lawyers need to bridge the gap between traditional law and traditional programmers. The two parties don't really understand each other, the programmer and the traditional lawyer, and the clients are expecting the lawyer and the programmer to get the job done. How is that going to happen? That's where we see smart contract lawyers coming into play. So you see why blockchain technology is so interesting for people like us, because uh, we understand the problems that will be occurring as smart contracts have become more and more used by some of our clients, for example. So how can blockchain technology be used specifically to protect um, intellectual property rights? Well, there's a couple of different initiatives we see right now, and the idea of having an immutable record is attractive in certain aspects of intellectual property protection. Obviously, there's already a large database of patents out there and a database of trademarks, and those are publicly accessible both here in the United States and at various intellectual property offices around the world. You can access all of those on the Internet. But where we're seeing interest now for smart contract implementation or blockchain implementations has to do with the use of those or recording information associated with those. There are a couple of websites out there that are already looking at trying to store information relating to trademarks on a blockchain because in the United States you have to show proof of use. But that's a record-keeping exercise. How do you know or how can you prove that a use actually occurred, especially if it was a long time in the past. The people who might have actually witnessed the use may be long gone or unavailable otherwise. But you'd like to be in a position to say, yes, this use really happened. On this date, a significant quantity of the goods bearing that trademark were actually were sold in commerce. And here's the receipt. Here are the people that were involved. So instead of mailing yourself an envelope and saying, right, that was the date it happened, you could record it on a blockchain. That blockchain includes a date stamp and time 
so that you know that's when it actually happened. That immutable record could, could survive for decades, if not longer. Right, and no one would be able to question in court that uh, you faked the record because the blockchain is immutable and therefore you couldn't have gone in and made a change to it. And so it allows you to record events with their date to use for later on for proof in court to prove your position on something. Now, this hasn't been tested in court yet, and so that's one of the areas that we're considering is, well, should there be an amendment to the federal rules of evidence for data that's stored on a blockchain? Is it as reliable as data that's printed in a newspaper or other publicly available document? Is it as reliable as some of these other records that are kept? There's exceptions in the federal rules of evidence, and shouldn't there be a blockchain exception? Yeah, I mean, that, that issue comes up with the Internet Archive, where people pull documents from old versions of websites and then try to use them in court based on the date of the putative date of the website itself. So I think solely but surely, since that's a large source of information, that these things will be accepted. Another area we're seeing a lot of interest in blockchain and intellectual property is copyrights. So uh, musicians, artists, and others who rely on copyright royalties for their livelihoods see this as an opportunity to reach more people and spread or allocate copyright royalties more fairly or more equitably. If they're able to provide you with access to a copyrighted work and collect funds through a blockchain, then they can make their money faster and you're able to access the information faster. There's no middleman. And as a result, the artists are encouraged to do more of this, and you as a consumer are able to enjoy more music, art, and the like that you're very interested in. Yeah, and you could have a smart contract automatically pay an artist for the use of his or her music or, or image through, right on the blockchain itself. And so you can imagine how... You know, when it comes to a piece of music, there might be three musicians involved, a producer, a writer, a director, and a whole host of people involved in just recording the music and getting it together. That's one chunk of one group of people that need to be compensated. And a smart contract could say every, for every dollar that comes in, here's how it gets split among those people. But then what you can remove from the equation are perhaps another group of people, more middlemen type, that were involved in distribution or other activities associated with the music, but not the actual art, so, so to speak, maybe they don't get compensated under that regime. You know, and just thinking about it, I mean, you could have, not so much for copyright per se, but let's say you wrote a song and you just stored it on the blockchain just to prove when you did it. So if, if later, you know, because people don't keep records like that or they make your hard drive dies or whatever, but if you were able to log it into a blockchain, a music blockchain, you could prove when you actually came up with the song. Exactly. And so what some people are contemplating here is using the blockchain to store either the whole work, which would actually be a lot of data and probably something we can't do very feasibly, but instead a thumbprint of it, like a thumbnail you see on the internet or a, in this case, what we call a hash, a very shortened version of the, the work, but in a way that's cryptographically secure. 
we know that that's the work. And then you can prove you were the first one to create the work and publish it. So obviously a lot of IP clients right now are thinking about and using the blockchain technology. What other types of clients are taking advantage of this? The biggest group is in the financial sector. All banks, insurance companies, real estate companies, that's where the real excitement about blockchain is because the blockchain would be used for actually carrying out the deals that they run and eliminating a lot, a lot of the costs that are associated with those deals. So that is where we're seeing the earliest signs of activity. Slowly but surely, I think it'll be offshot into the IP sector, but it's the financial sector that's the biggest area for this. The financial sector sees this as an opportunity and as a disruption. So some participants are concerned that cryptocurrencies are going to be are going to flourish and be in a position to compete with the existing payment system, whether it's the SWIFT network for exchanging money across international boundaries, or the credit card networks for making normal payments, or the person-to-person apps that are already available. If now you're able to, to move currency from one person to another and not involve a bank, not involve a government, not involve a credit card company, those could be potentially disruptive to their businesses. And so a lot of companies are concerned and also see this as threat to their business models. That said, it's also an opportunity. We now have opportunities for new kinds of funding, new kinds of financial instruments, new kinds of access to ordinary for ordinary people to banking and investment opportunities, kind of like crowdfunding right now. You can go to a number of websites and crowdfund all sorts of interesting things. Well, blockchain technology makes that potentially more secure, potentially more transparent. So it's an interesting new application. I agree that those things will disrupt or could disrupt some of these systems. But I don't know whether you noticed, but banks are starting to get into the person-to-person payment system in a really big way. Part of the reason is because the PayPal division, Venmo, has been making a lot of money doing it. So I think the banks are looking at it. But I don't think that, for example, Bitcoin would be a a valid competitor in that because, I mean, the biggest problem with paying using a credit card or any of these systems where you have a middleman is that there's a transaction fee. The problem with Bitcoin is, and this is something that we hadn't talked about yet, the idea of having miners and Bitcoin, the cost of having someone running the Bitcoin network, these third parties who are not in charge of it, but are doing all the dirty work for it. There's a big cost associated with that. So the transaction fees for Bitcoin transactions is getting to be pretty high, maybe about $5 right now per transaction, which would make it unreasonable to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you know, if it was going to cost $5 for the transaction fee. But I I do agree that it is disruptive and that it's being used for a lot of these things that that people didn't have opportunities for before. But some areas of the financial industry, like insurance, blockchain has a lot of interesting possibilities. As an example, we created a smart contract for earthquake insurance here in New York City. (laughs) And we said, look, if all the insurance companies in New York City are located in New York City and you have to buy the insurance policy from them, What are you going to do when the earthquake strikes and knocks out the insurance company? Mm -hmm. 
how are you going to get paid your insurance? And the whole point of insurance, or in this case, disaster insurance, is being able to access the money right after the disaster because that's when you need it, not months later when perhaps the, the company that issued the insurance gets back on its feet and is now able to run its business. It should be on a blockchain. We should be in a position to have an insurance contract that allows access to the money right after the event occurred. And it, right, so you have a smart contract that's stored on the blockchain that has all the details. You pay a certain premium, and if there is a, an earthquake, and that's easy enough to tell, you, you know the exact location of the earthquake, it automatically pays you whatever the, your insurance amount is. And that's what we created here, a smart contract of that type, just to show that it works. Right. Now, uh, about a month ago, if not less than that, a company started offering parametric insurance for flight delays. They issued an insurance policy and it said, if the, your flight is delayed more than two hours, we'll pay out. So you buy a premium, they consider whether your flight is typically delayed or usually delayed or how much the delay is and then charge you a premium. And if it turns out your flight is delayed, you get paid out. That's one real life example of a smart contract in the, in the insurance context that really, really makes a lot of sense. Right. It eliminates the, the insurance agent because you buy it directly online and it eliminates the adjuster because once the airline identifies the fact that the flight was delayed, it automatically pays. You don't need anybody to come in and make the determination. It's all done automatically. And you can see that expanded to car insurance here in New York. It's already a no-fault situation in many contexts. If you have no-fault insurance, then it's just a matter of the insurance companies deciding between themselves who's going to pay what. But for those of us involved in the car accident, well, I know I need my car fixed, I know I need a rental car, and I know I need transportation home right here, right now. There should be a smart contract that springs into action, contacts the auto body shop so that my car gets repaired, contacts taxi or other service so that I can get home right now. Uber. And contacts the insurance companies and lets them know what's going on and lets them figure out who's going to pay and between the two of them. Yeah, all these things can be done automatically. That The whole idea, again, is to continuously eliminate the middleman and do things in an automated manner so that no one has to think about it. Do you see any issues with the technology right now that you think need to be resolved? Well, the smart contract technology is still maturing, frankly. It's a process of educating the clientele as to what they really can and can't do. Not everything can be put into a smart contract. So people might say, well, I want this all as a smart contract and really certain, uh, you know, some large percentage of a written contract can't be implemented as code. It doesn't have those action type qualities to it. The other part of it is trying to find those use cases where it makes sense. And that's where so many participants in this industry and in this area are searching for those use cases. Enterprises are tracking products from the field to the customer and throughout the supply chain. That's turning out to be a good use case. Others are using identity as a use case. Beyond those two, it's been more difficult to find applications that really work. 
but there's a lot of effort going into it right now. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, some of, some of the use cases are a bit of a stretch, and unfortunately, people look at them and roll their eyes and say, well, do we need a blockchain for that? But again, anytime you have a new technology, you're going to have people trying it out on a lot of different things to find the right thing that works. Look, the biggest problem with blockchain and, and cryptocurrency in particular is the areas of hacking and fraud, and people being cheated out of their money. So thinking internationally, is there a potential for a global network for smart contracts? Absolutely. And that's one of the big use cases that's being explored right now in the financial industry. If we can have international settlement of transactions happen faster than they are right now, and in some cases it still takes three days for money to change hands for an international transaction. And then if that process can be reduced down to hours, if not minutes, you can imagine tremendous cost savings that would result. As well, even for an international sale of goods, so many different people have to sign off or verify that the goods have actually gone from point A to point B, and that customs has been cleared, and that the freight forwarder has it, and that, that it's actually been removed from one mode of transport and put on another. All of those records could be on a blockchain. All of those records could be immutably added so that there's consistent and verifiable understanding of what happens. And then when something goes wrong, we know exactly what happened when it happened. Well, and if everything goes right, a smart contract could automatically make the payment go from the party that received the goods to the party that supplied the goods. And all the people in between can get paid quickly or more quickly than they were before. The, the more we can reduce that friction associated with international commerce, the more efficient everything becomes. And if you use a cryptocurrency or something like a cryptocurrency as part of it, then you don't have to worry about currency exchanges at both ends of the contract. Right. And so if your shipment takes three months to get from point A to point B, and meanwhile the currency jumps 10%, who's responsible for that currency jump? Right. Why should that be part of the equation? It is right now, and somebody takes that currency risk. But if we could remove that, or at least reduce it, you could see how things could be a lot better. Now, you do have a problem, though, because there is a certain amount of anonymity with these type of transactions on a blockchain. So there are laws in the United States and Europe about called know your customer. So you can't just deal with anyone. You have to know who you're dealing with. In fact, even our law firm, we can't take on a client unless we actually know who they are or they prove who they are because there are laws against dealing with people, let's say, who are in a country, you know, on a, on a no-deal list or whatever from different countries and terrorist lists or that kind of thing. And there's also anti-money laundering rules. So you don't want to be sending money to somebody or receiving money from somebody for, for a transaction that is actually laundering the money and not it's a sham transaction otherwise. So these are problems that will that need to be addressed as well, even for those kinds of applications. But as it is, large consortium of banks and other financial institutions are wrestling with these issues right now. Prototypes and pilot programs have already been developed and are deployed, working through the problems of actually engaging in international commerce between parties using cryptocurrency or at least using a blockchain to keep track of all the records. And lawyers are involved in every step of the way. 
So that's why I said the smart contracts are not eliminating lawyers. These are creating more issues for lawyers to decide. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So this was Alessandra Daggermanjan with Ted Menar and Ira Schaefer. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great. Thank you. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Our mixing and audio production this week is by Patrick Howe. Special thanks to staff correspondent Alessandra Daggermanjian, and a huge thank you to Ted Blanar and Ira Schaefer for being part of this episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.